All right. If we can get our Bibles ready, uh, we're going to have some of the teens lead our Bible readings now. And, and a leader. He's not quite a teenager anymore. Good morning, everyone. Today I'll be reading a cyanide. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when fighting the plunder. For, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, near shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish us. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people who know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, say with pride, the arrogance of the heart, the brick that has fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened resins foes against them, and the sparrowed their enemies on them. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still appraised. But the people have not returned to him who stuck struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off Israel's both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and dictators are the head, the prophets who teach lies are the tails. Those who guide those people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor with the pity of the fatherless and widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly, yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away. His head is still upraised. Second, re second readings from Philippians 4, 1 to 13. Therefore, my brothers and I and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudoia and I plead with Syntec to be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, 
by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Keep your Bibles open at Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to unpack that today. First thing to get us started off thinking about Philippians chapter 4. What do you think about the most? Turn to your neighbor, divulge your thoughts. <laughs> what is it that you reckon you think about the most? I'll give you 10, 20 seconds. Go for it. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. Free counselling session over. But do pro-offer some more generalised answers. (laughs) What is it that you think about the most? Let's hear some, some thoughts. Your wife, dinner time. That's good. Uh, Bonnie thinks about mummy, yes, pro-offering other people's thoughts, yes, yes, absolutely. Heard that earlier. Uh, family. That's a good one, that's a good one. Anything else, anything else? Kids, what do you think? No ideas, you guys don't, never, no. Oh, sorry, yeah. Who's that kid's parents? All right. That's good stuff. I like that. I'm on board with that. (laughs) That's good. Next question. You don't have to answer this one, but do you like thinking about those things? Uh, Well, no one said work, which is, you know, you work for most of your life. No one thinks about that. But uh, I don't know. Do you... Do you like thinking about the things that you think about most? <laughs> do, you, do you enjoy that? Well, sometimes it, it, it depends. It depends how family's going, I guess. Um, it depends how the relationship is. It depends if the baby's crying or laughing. Uh, it, it depends. It depends if, the, if you feel that the things of the universe are, <laughs> are, are pleasant or not. 
And if not, what would you rather be thinking about? You think about these things all the time. You love it. Nothing I'd rather be thinking about. You hate it. Well, well, what would you rather be thinking about? What is it you'd want to think about? Now, these three questions, they're all very much linked together. What we think about affects how we feel. That's the truth of the matter. We flip it around the other way, though, sometimes. We often think it is the other way around. We let our feelings dictate what we think about. Our feelings dictate what we think about. So that means if we're happy, then we think about good things. If we're angry or upset or sad, we think about bad things. And in that sense, we're at the whims of our, both our feelings and our circumstances. The Bible says it should be the other way around. It should be this way. That means that if you're going through something difficult, difficult circumstances, if you were going through that, what would it mean for you to be thinking on the blessings of God, even amidst that? And if you were going through great circumstances, what would it mean to be thinking about praising God in those circumstances? It would mean that through the good and the bad, you would be able to be at peace and that you would be able to be content, not a victim of circumstance and not a victim of just your own feelings, at the whims of your feelings. That's what we're looking at today as we finish up the letter of the Philippians. Chapter 4, think of the praiseworthy. Think of the praiseworthy. Here's a roadmap. We're going to look at resolving church conflict. That's how chapter 4 starts. And then secondly, we're going to think about fighting anxiety with peace and contentment. First thing we're looking at, resolving church conflict. Every church has conflict because every church is filled with people. And when you're going through conflict in church, that's all you can think about. That's what's on your mind. Philippians 4 again. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Paul really loves this church. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, whoever that is, we don't know, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul finishes up his letter and he sees it necessary to address this public conflict. And even from just these two verses, we can actually learn a lot about conflict and this conflict. First of all, it's between Judea and Syntyche and these two women are Christians. Their names are both written in the book of life at the end of verse 3. Secondly, it seems that this conflict is about Christian concerns. It doesn't seem to be merely a personality clash which is why Paul pleads with them to agree in the Lord, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Thirdly, it involves what we might call ministry leaders. They contend at Paul's sides, these women. They are his co-workers. They are leaders in the church. And finally, pr presumably, because they are leaders in the church, it is a public conflict. That's to say, Paul has written publicly to the whole church. He's written an open letter to the whole church about this conflict. So we can assume that according to Matthew 18, these women have talked to each other, couldn't figure it out. They got other people involved to help them figure it out. Didn't work. And now it's put before the whole church. The whole church is to help them, these two women, 
figure it out. Public conflict. What do they disagree about? Don't know. Can't know. But we know what they don't disagree about. They don't disagree about the death and resurrection of the Lord. They don't disagree about the nature of God. They don't disagree about the authority of Scripture. If they disagreed about any of those things, someone's name is not in the book of life. So perhaps it's something that is written in the letter already. It could be about humility. It could be about uh, grumbling or complaining. It could be about the Christian life, what rules to follow, as we were thinking about that in Philippians chapter 3. Not sure. Could be one, could be many. More importantly, though, what does Paul ask these two women to do? What's the action that they're meant to take? Well, he says they're to be of the same mind in the Lord. They've got to work it out somehow. They've got to come to agreement. They've got to work together. They're not just to let it... They're not just to disengage. Just let it be. They are to engage with it. If it's a theological disagreement, then everyone needs to search the scriptures. If it is a disagreement about church life and decisions that need to be made, well, someone's got to be in charge, make the call. If it's an issue about Christian character, well, then whoever is out of character needs to get in line with character, to be humble, not to grumble, to be selfless, whatever it might be. Hard work. But they're not alone in the task. They're not alone. Paul writes to the whole church and says, help these women. Help these women. How are the church going to help them? Well, Paul's written a whole letter to the church. He's reminded the whole church, them included, to value others above themselves in humility, not to grumble, not to complain, to be selfless, not selfish, not to put confidence in their own goodness, as it were, but to treasure Christ and his goodness and to keep their eyes set on their destination. Then he's going to say at the end of this chapter, pray about your anxieties. And if you're in a conflict in church, you are guaranteed are anxious. Think about what is pure, lovely, and admirable, praiseworthy. And if you're in a conflict in church, that is not what you're doing. That is not what you're doing. Seek contentment. All of this will help these women. And as the church learn these lessons, they will help these two women. <clears throat> so what's it mean for us today? First of all, we must remember that church conflict is often between Christians, between two brothers, two sisters, brothers and sisters, and that we are united in Christ. That's the reality. Even when it doesn't look like it, that's the reality. We're united in Christ. And that truth ought to affect how we proceed. The background, to, the background ought to be, for every church conflict, one of humility, of grace, of love, of repentance, of faith. The second thing we should take away is that everyone who is affected by the conflict is involved in the conflict. So everyone that's affected is involved. In the Philippians case, it is public. The whole church is affected. The whole church is involved. The wrong way of dealing, a conf dealing with conflict is if not everyone that's affected is involved. So, me, 
and Jemima and Pete and Liz have a disagreement or a conflict and me and Jemima go away and we talk about it. And what do you think happens? Well, we solve, we solve the problems, of course. <laughs> we figure it all out, of course. <laughs> but we've left two parties of the conflict not involved. Or worse yet, we get someone else that is not affected involved. And this kind of triangulation often leads to exactly what Paul has talked about in the letter so strongly, grumbling, complaining, selfishness, these things, gossip. What can we learn from this? Only those that are affected are involved. And in a public case, everyone's affected, everyone's involved. And finally, of course, we need to put into practice everything else that's been written in the letter. The, the last three weeks of church, put it into practice. People who do not grumble and complain by nature. That, that is our disposition. We're to be people who are humble and selfless. People who set our eyes on heaven and treasure Jesus. And this gives us such a perspective. Because when problems arise... Our perspective narrows so much. We need to step back and see. It's to the Lord's glory that we do everything. And then our next part, people that pray. Actively thinking on the noble, the pure, the admirable, the praiseworthy. First point today, resolving church conflict. Finding ways to do that. And helping each other do that. Second point, fighting anxiety with peace and contentment. Now everyone is talking about anxiety these days. That's because more than ever, we live in an age of anxiety, which is ironically depressing. Everybody's trying to find peace and contentment. So what's Paul say about it? Because Paul reckons he's found the secret sauce. He's got the 11 herbs and spices of peace and contentment. Let's hear them. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is Paul's first response to anxiety? Prayer. It is prayer. What does Paul expect from his prayers? He expects peace. The kind of peace that is Better than knowledge, just knowing the right answers. Better than that. It's the kind of peace which guards you, guards your hearts and minds. That's to say, it doesn't leave you. It's not there and then gone. It stays with you. It guards you. How do you get that peace? You pray for it. What if I don't get that peace? You keep praying for it. You keep praying. But is that all? Is that all I do? No. Paul says more. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In effect, Paul is saying, don't dwell on the things that make you anxious, which is by definition what happens when you're anxious. You dwell on the things that make you anxious. And I think you know where that gets you. <laughs> what do you do instead? Think about these things. Think about 
true, what is true, what is noble, what is pure, what is admirable, what is praiseworthy. Think on that. In effect, Paul is saying, don't let your circumstances or your feelings dictate what you think about. Don't let your anxiety or your anxious thoughts, uh, don't let your anxious feelings lead to anxious thoughts. Instead, let your thoughts moderate your feelings. Paul writes in the next verse, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying that you need to practice prayer. You need to practice everything in the letter. He's talking about everything. But for now, he's talking about you need to practice prayer. You need to practice thinking. Some of us are really, we've practiced thinking anxious thoughts for a long time. And we are very good at it. We are skilled thinkers when it comes to anxious thoughts. You can be a skilled thinker about the praiseworthy, the noble, and all these things. To that end, let me pray for us right now. Let us practice this right now. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our minds. You know how many anxious thoughts we have, whether it's about our relationships, our church, our work, our finances, whether we have a disposition medically or otherwise to anxiety or or anything else. Uh, Father, we pray that you help us to be people that practice peace, people that practice prayer, like we're doing right now, and that we would be people that persevere in prayer, Lord, seeking after your peace. And we pray that in your son's name, the King of Peace. Amen. Put that into practice every day, every moment. Shoot up an arrow prayer, as Colin Buchanan would say. Going back to where we started, I'm not sure what it is that you think about most. Given that you are living in an affluent, in the affluent Western society that we live in, the chances are that you are anxious. As a society, on average, we are more anxious. We are more anxious than other societies, other people, other ages, uh, even historically. We are more anxious despite the fact that we are more wealthy, that we're more free, we're more secure. We are more anxious despite those things. How is that possible? that, That seems like a contradiction. And it would be a contradiction if our circumstances dictated or determined our feelings. That would, that would not make sense. If we have the best circumstances, we should feel great. That's how it should work. That's not how it works. That is not true. That is, that is the Western worldview. That is a way of thinking that, we th- that, that is prevalent in the West. It's a worldview. Anxiety is not merely a matter of circumstances. It comes from the way that we view the world. Our thoughts strongly influence our feelings. But we live like our circumstances dictate our feelings. Therefore, our feelings dictate our thoughts. And that causes all sorts of anxiety, which which we, are, we as a society experience. What would Paul say? 
Paul says, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Talking about Christ. Paul says the secret, he's found the secret to peace and contentment. And it isn't about changing your circumstances. He's in jail. He's not going anywhere. The secret is in your mindset. It's about what you think about. And it's about thinking about the right thing. And he has one thing in mind. One thing. One person. He's thinking about King Jesus. The secret to contentment doesn't lie within Paul somehow, which is every self-help book ever. I've read a bunch of them. That's what they say. The secret of contentment is not any of that. It is King Jesus. What is true? What is pure? What is noble? What is admirable? What is praiseworthy? King Jesus is. Par excellence. He is all those things. There is nothing greater. You could think about Jesus all day long. When it comes to what do you think about most, you could think about him all day long. Pretty close to what Michael was talking about. And you wouldn't have wasted one moment. Not one moment. You could search the riches of his word and you would find the secret to peace and contentment. The, the secret that everyone in our age is looking for. If you've got a Bible in front of you, if you've got a phone with the app on it, you've got the answer to peace and contentment. It comes from Christ who gives you strength. It comes through knowing him and thinking on him. Everyone offers you ways of finding peace and contentment these days. The Bible offers you one too. You've probably tried everything in the book. You've probably been offered every sort of resource there is. Well, you should try this one out. You should put it to test. Test it out. See if it's true. Fight anxiety with peace and contentment that comes through thinking on Christ. Pondering his goodness and his greatness. That is a cause for rejoicing. As the band comes up, let me end with these words from Philippians chapter 4, 8 to 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.